Hello and welcome to Abemus Papam, episode 260, St. Paul the Sixth. Dear Sixth. brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Abemus Papam. So we are getting closer and closer to today, to the modern time. And yet still, each pope is absolutely fascinating, and St. Paul VI is no exception. And we've heard his name a bunch the last couple episodes. He was born Giovanni Battista Montini outside of Brescia in northern Italy on September 26, 1897. Most of his childhood and his early priesthood, he went by Battista. His father, Giorgio, was the founder of a small Catholic newspaper in Brescia, and he was very politically active with Catholic action. And eventually, he went on to serve in the Italian parliament while Battista was still fairly young. His political connections were tied with the Catholic liberals who wanted a fully Catholic political party. You were not as hardline as the popes at the time, rejecting the Italian state wholeheartedly. He was friends with a wide swath of like-minded political figures, and in this political milieu, that's what the young Battista grew up in. Now, Battista wanted to become a priest, but he was quite sickly from a young age, and because of his poor health, he was not able to attend seminary. Now, despite that, he was counseled by a range of priests who would guide him the rest of his life and oversee his studies from home. His poor health prevented him from spending any time fighting during World War I and necessitated home studies for his entire priestly formation. Young Batista never lived at or attended seminary. Everything he did was organized by his priest mentors and done in his family house. Nevertheless, he was ordained a priest on May 29, 1920 in Brescia. Now, very early on, young Father Battista Montini was sent to Rome for further studies, in part due to the influence of his father, who now served in the Italian parliament, and his political allies. He studied both philosophy and literature, attending both a church and a secular university, and became pretty active in FUCI, the Federation of Italian Catholic University Students. His studies pretty quickly changed, and he was invited to attend the Academia, the school for those who would be future papal diplomats. And he would serve in the Secretary of State or the Diplomatic Corps in one form or another for decades. While studying in the academia, Father Battista was very active in FUCI, bringing together a wide range of Catholic university students who would become the future leaders of Italy. In particular, one of his students was Aldo Moro, the future Prime Minister of Italy. But many of his students would serve as leaders in one way or another. Over the next decade, Father Battista and soon Monsignor Battista Montini would rise through the ranks in both the Secretary of State and to become the national chaplain of FUCI, serving in both capacities for a number of years. And both these roles presented major challenges because of the rise of Mussolini and the fascist movement in Rome. Monsignor Battista's connections with the political opposition to Mussolini already made him suspicious in their eyes. And the publishing house he set up with the FUCI members and some of his published works set the fascists off. In part because of Monsignor Battista's group, Mussolini ordered that all Catholic youth groups be dissolved in 1931, and Pope Pius XI reacted in part by writing his encyclical Non Abbiamo Bisogno against the Italian fascists. But opposition to Monsignor Battista came not only from the fascists, but from inside the church too. Many clerics were growing suspicious of him, whether or not he was acting based on the faith or on politics, or if he was too tied into the political scene, and denounced him to the Pope. And eventually he was forced to resign from his position in FUCI and focus entirely his work on the Secretary of State. But in the Secretary of State, things were looking up for him. The new Secretary of State was Cardinal Eugenio Pacelli. And if you remember from two episodes ago, he was eventually elected Pope Pius XII. 
Bocelli worked very closely with Monsignor Battista Montini and in 1937 got him promoted to Sostituto for the Secretary of State. It was a position of immense influence and importance, in many ways the chief of staff for the whole Vatican. And in that role, he worked closely with the Secretary of State Cardinal Bocelli so that when Cardinal Bocelli became Pope Pius XII in 1939, he continued to have a very close working relationship with him. Now, at this point, he was clearly a rising star to the point that the French ambassador at the time said that he was certainly going to be pope at some point. But this notoriety seems to have upset the actual pope, who began to distance himself from his collaborator. Added to that were the activities of Monsignor Montini, which ran counter to Pope Pius's own plans. Monsignor Montini had become a friend of some of the new theological up-and-comers in the church, in particular, Father Henri de Lubac. Pius XII was much more suspicious of these theologians, and as was mentioned two episodes ago, his encyclical Humanae Generis was written particularly to address this kind of new strain in theological thought. Monsignor Montini was not a fan of this encyclical and told his friends that the encyclical was much more mild than the Pope intended. Monsignor Montini also supported and gained an audience with the Pope of Protestants who were opposed to the definition of the assumption that Pope Pius XII made in 1950. While he believed in the assumption, Monsignor Montini was wary of what he believed to be excessive Marian piety. And finally, there was moments where Monsignor Montini seemed to run the Vatican on his own and didn't tell the Pope about certain developments. And when the Pope would find out, that led to even more distance between Pope Pius XII and Monsignor Montini. When the Secretary of State Cardinal Magnoni died in 1944, Pope Pius had not replaced him, but instead it was basically his own Secretary of State, with Monsignor Montini and another official at the Secretary of State, Monsignor Tardini, assisting him. Now, eventually they were giving the titles of pro-Secretary of State, meaning they weren't the Secretary, but they basically were. In a normal papacy, they would have been named Cardinals, but Pope Pius didn't do that in this case. Now, the story that's told both by the Pope and Monsignor Tardini was that the Pope offered to make them cardinals in 1951, but they turned it down out of humility. Pope Pius himself stated, quote, These two prelates, in a sign of their outstanding virtue, beseeched us so insistently to let them decline this high charge that we thought that we should acquiesce to the repeated supplications and prayers. And while that is the official story, historians don't really buy it. They thought that the Pope didn't really want to appoint especially Monsignor Montini, a cardinal, and that he gave them the title pro-secretary as allowed a way to let them save face and gave them an opportunity to refuse out of humility for the same reason. So it's probably true that they refused to be named cardinals, but it was also probably the case that there was a lot of pressure on them so to do. And so when the opportunity arose, uh, the Pope got Monsignor Montini out of the Vatican entirely. And in 1954, he appointed him the Archbishop of Milan. Now, this was normally a cardinalatial position, but Pope Pius didn't appoint any more cardinals during his papacy, in part, most likely, to avoid naming the Archbishop Montini as a cardinal. The new archbishop was disappointed in his promotion, and it kind of showed. But after being ordained a bishop on December 12, 1954, and he made his move to Milan, he was an attentive bishop and particularly concerned about his new diocese, where statistically mass attendance was dropping. So he organized a massive evangelical mission to the city of Milan. He called in hundreds of preachers from all over the world, including some famous theologians that he was friends with, and from all over Italy. And he unleashed them all on the city at once, preaching across the city. It was a valiant, creative, and beautiful effort. But the demographic and sociological decline continued. On October of 1958, Pope Pius XII died, and a conclave was held to elect his successor. Even though he wasn't a cardinal, as we mentioned last week, Archbishop Montini reportedly received some votes early on. 
Though many of the more traditional cardinals did not approve of his election, the more traditional Cardinal Siri, the Archbishop of Genoa, was asked by a reporter if Archbishop Montini could be elected, and he got quite angry. He interrupted the reporter and said, quote, oh, no, not that. Showing the reporter his Episcopal ring, which was missing a stone, he said, a few minutes ago, someone came to hold a strange conversation with me. I understood that he had come to test the waters in view of a Montini candidacy. I hit the table with my fist so hard that I broke the stone. If Montini were a Cardinal, then... But then he finishes. The Pope to emerge from the conclave, of course, was who we talked about last week, Angelo Roncalli, who was close to Archbishop Montini from his time as Nuncio of Paris. And he was crowned Pope John XXIII on November 4th. And on November 17th, announced that he would name 23 cardinals. And the very first person on that list was Archbishop Montini. Included also on the list was the new Secretary of State, Monsignor Tardini, Archbishop Montini's counterpart during the long years of serving Pius XII as pro-Secretaries of State. After the consistory, the Pope made more waves, as we heard last week on January 25th, 1959, without having consulted or tipped anyone else off, he announced his intention to call the Second Vatican Council. And from this point on, the new Cardinal Montini's intentions and energy would be poured into the council. Initially, he wasn't directly placed in charge of any of the preparatory work, but he did ask the Pope to place three priests that he trusted on some of the most senior preparatory commissions. So he had his kind of fingers on the, on, on the scale. Now, as we heard last week, the council opened on October 11th, 1962. Cardinal Montini was one of the major players in the beginning of the council. We need not go through all of it blow by blow of what happened, at least up until 1963. That was kind of covered last week. But it's significant that Cardinal Montini stayed in a small house that was specially set aside for him by Pope John throughout the first session. It let him meet with the Pope regularly and discreetly. While he didn't make major interventions on the floor, it was clear that he had the Pope's ear and support. The major move of the first session was the rejection of the list of the membership of the council commissions chosen by the Curia. Cardinal Leinart of France asked that the approval of these lists be postponed so the council fathers could meet one another and choose people that represented the whole body. Cardinal Montini was one of six or seven cardinals who planned this move. When the council moved to rewrite whole portions of texts prepared by the preparatory commissions, Cardinal Montini was one of those pushing for that step. And while he was portrayed as one of the more, you know, quote, liberal or reformist faction of the council, he was certainly not what the media portrayed, someone trying to throw out the tradition of the church and start afresh. In fact, in 1963, he made several statements that the council couldn't just adhere to the modern style of the world, writing that it, quote, ought to consist less in an indulgent attitude towards our century's lifestyle, as if we ought to become tasteless salt deprived of burning its salvific effects. Now, John XXIII was dying, and it was clear to everyone he wouldn't outlive the council. At the end of May 1963, his health took a turn for the worst, and Cardinal Montini came to Rome. Now, apparently, the Pope himself said on his deathbed that Cardinal Montini should be his successor. He died on June 3, 1963, and the cardinals came to Rome to elect a successor. Cardinal Montini was one of the prime candidates for his election, but his major challenger was the more traditional Cardinal Siri of Genoa. But Cardinal Siri himself saw that things were pointing towards Cardinal Montini as the votes went on, and he told everyone to say, you know, we got to vote for him. We got to stay unified. So on June 21st, 1963, Cardinal Montini was elected Pope. He took the name Paul VI, in part after the Apostle Paul, and in part after Paul V, who implemented the Council of Trent. Now, he immediately confirmed that the council would continue. That was the question. Would it outlast the papacy of John XXIII? And it did. The Pope intervened at different moments in the council, but for the most part, he worked behind the scenes. In 1963, at the end of the council's third session, he had promulgated a couple of the council's documents, including a decree on the liturgy. 
but there was still lots of work to be done. But the Pope, in the meantime, had another groundbreaking item on his agenda, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Now, no Pope had left Italy since Pius VII in 1809, and certainly no Pope had been to the Holy Land as Pope basically ever. But in August of 1963, the Pope was invited to the Holy Land by a French priest who was living there. The trip was planned in secrecy, and the goal was to avoid making a political statement about the state of Israel and Palestine while he was there, but rather to make this just a spiritual pilgrimage. Now, when the word got out, the ecumenical patriarch of the Greek Orthodox Church, Athenagoras, heard about it and decided he wanted to come as well. The ecumenical patriarch and the Pope hadn't met in person for over a thousand years, and this was the first step in reestablishing relationships between the separated brethren. In January of 1964, the pilgrimage began with visits to Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Galilee, and the Pope met the patriarch in Jerusalem and greeted him as a brother. They agreed to establish a joint commission of Orthodox and Catholic theologians to talk out their differences. And not to jump ahead too much, but Pope Paul continued to reach out to ecumenical leaders, and especially to the Orthodox throughout his papacy. In fact, he gave the head of St. Andrew, one of the most precious relics of the Vatican, and a closely associated relic with the Orthodox, as a gift to the Orthodox. And he and the ecumenical patriarch solemnly lifted the excommunications that each church had made towards each other in 1054 when the split happened. The split wasn't healed entirely, still hasn't been healed, but it was a good start. Pope Paul VI would start the trend of traveling. And in 1964, he visited along with the Holy Land, the city of Bombay in India, and for a Eucharistic Congress, and he spoke uh, in the United Nations uh, in New York City. Back in Rome, the Second Vatican Council marched on to completion, and now things were starting to get tense. The media narrative surrounding the council proclaimed radical changes in the church's teaching, something Pope Paul VI expressly rejected, and confusion was starting to grow. Nevertheless, the conclusion of the council was one of optimism for Pope Paul. He and the council fathers believed that the council would unleash a new wave of the Holy Spirit in the church and lead to renewal and growth in the faith. The council was closed on December 8, 1965, and the implementation began. Now, as I said, Pope Paul VI was initially optimistic about the results of the council and pressed on with implementing the reforms it decreed, including the rearrangement of the Roman Curia, a study uh, of reforming canon law, and of course, the thing that affects most Catholics the most, the reform of the liturgy. Yet there were voices alongside of him who were growing particularly pessimistic. His good friend and collaborator who he'd known for years, the philosopher Jacques Maritain, wrote a book about the suddenness of the decay of the church in France. Voices were coming from all around that people were starting to doubt key teachings in the church, that belief in the Eucharist and in confession and in the sacramental life and the priesthood were all starting to founder. It was a crisis brewing. The Pope was caught between two difficulties. On one side of the church, those more traditionally inclined, they were warning about the dangers of what would come after the council. So some, like those following Archbishop Lefebvre, a French missionary bishop, wanted to go back to the time before the council. They saw the whole crisis that was surrounding the church as the fall to the council and didn't want any part of its reforms, especially liturgical ones. They pointed to declining vocation numbers, and the vast number of priests and religious who were leaving their promises as signs of the failure of the council. On the other side, there were those pushing for an extreme version of the council, going far beyond what anyone at the council said, demanding an end to clerical celibacy, to approval of birth control, and much more. The Pope had to thread a needle between the two, and he was increasingly having a difficult time. Now, he pushed on with the implementation of the Council, while at the same time teaching through his encyclicals the perennial truths of the faith. His encyclicals Mysterium Fidei on the Eucharist, Sacerdotalis Celibatis on priestly celibacy, and Humanae Vitae, his most famous, on contraception, 
taught boldly and courageously the perennial truths of the faith. And in many cases, large swaths of the church rejected them. His encyclical Populorum Progresso expressed with hope the role of Christ's love in making progress in the modern world. In his promulgation of the New Missal and the New Liturgy attempted to incarnate the liturgical reforms made by the church in the Second Vatican Council. By 1968, the publishing of Humanae Vitae, it was clear that the Pope was assailed truly from all sides. Countless theologians around the world rejected the Pope's teaching in Humanae Vitae about the illicit nature of contraception and the purpose of marital love, and defections came in droves. On the other side, Archbishop Lefebvre and his Society of St. Pius X, which he had founded, was growing, and they had established a seminary in Switzerland, and the Pope had sent a visitation to the seminary, but the relationship between the Vatican and the Lefebvres was pretty tense. The Pope himself expressed his sadness at the state of things, saying in a talk that, By some crack, the smoke of Satan has entered the temple of God. Doubt, uncertainty, difficulties, worry, dissatisfaction, and conflict have arisen. He continues, It is an adverse power, the devil, that mysterious being, enemy of all mankind, that supernatural things come to spoil and dry up the fruits of the ecumenical council and to prevent the church from breaking forth in hymns of joy for having rediscovered knowledge of herself. Now, in the meantime, the Pope tried his best in a difficult situation, remaining faithful to the truths of the faith and trying his hardest when surrounded by a whirling crisis in the church. And the crisis was not only in the church, but in society as well. The sexual revolution, revolutionary politics around the world, and the tensions and violence at home in Italy were the backdrop and some of the factors shaping the church's crisis. And it's telling that at this time, and as, as his pontificate kind of came towards the end, his closest friend was his erstwhile opponent, the more traditionalist Cardinal Siri of Genoa, who was able to speak to him and comfort him and give him good advice. Then, in 1978, as the Pope's health was declining, tragedy struck. One of his young students from his chaplain days, we talked about a little bit earlier, Aldo Moro, had become the Prime Minister of Italy. In March of 1978, an Italian communist paramilitary organization called the Red Brigades kidnapped Moro. The police could not find him. The Pope pleaded for his return. He was a dear friend who had known the Pope for decades The Pope gave all his energy and some of his personal money in trying to give him back. Fifty-five days later, Morrow's body was found in an abandoned car near the Tiber River in Rome. He had been shot ten times. The Pope, weak though he was, celebrated the funeral of his friend, but he was devastated. Pope Paul VI was broken by the tragedy and the weight of the church's crisis. He remained faithful, and as he put it, quote, I did what I could. But he died August 6, 1978, a couple of months after the death of his friend. He had a very simple funeral and burial in St. Peter's Basilica. His cause for canonization was opened, and he was beatified on October 19, 2014, and canonized on October 14, 2018, by Pope Francis. St. Paul VI was succeeded by Blessed John Paul I and his brief papacy we will talk about next time. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you, and God bless you.